So tonight we're going to be um, throughout Acts chapter 2, which is familiar to us. And um, there will be a lot of scriptures. So I will try to give you time to look them up and find them if you're following along or if you're taking notes. So where we have um, left off, where we've, we've been teaching here is uh, Peter has just preached the very first sermon in church history. And multitudes of people respond to this sermon. So I want you to just think about that for just a moment. This sermon right here in Acts chapters 1 and 2 is where Peter gives the very first sermon of the church. This is the church age, all right? This is a new thing. This is the birthday of the church right here. And before this, prior to this, they had the Old Testament. They had the law. They had the prophets. And they had Jesus walking with them and teaching them. But now, here they are in this new predicament, this new place, where Jesus is no longer with them. He's not walking the earth with them in shoe leather. And they still have the Old Testament, but they have no New Testament. I want you to think about that. They can't open up Scripture and read Matthew to Revelation. It wasn't there. It hadn't been written. And so... Since the early church had no New Testament written yet, Peter gets up and preaches the most beautiful and profound sermon, and he appealed to the Old Testament for his sermon text. His sermon starts with Joel and ends with Jesus. He starts with talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament that are being fulfilled, and he wraps up this message with Jesus. He preaches who the Lord is and how we are to call on him for salvation. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is how He wrapped up this message. Verse 40, he goes on and he he continues teaching them and tells them the way of salvation. He continues to tell them what they must do. And the people are responding to this message and they're asking questions and they want to know. They were pricked in their hearts, the scripture says. So moving on to verse 40, it says, with many other words... Did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation? So this passage of scripture is not the end of this sermon. It's not the end of the preaching, but this is just the beginning. This is the birth of the church right here in this passage of scripture. Because the new birth is a birth It is a being born into the kingdom of God. This is just the beginning. So what we've seen and we've studied in these first couple of chapters in the book of Acts is the birth of the church. It's how it happened. It's how it was born. 
But as we all know, birth is just the beginning. We have to grow up. We have to obey God's commandments. We have to be saved from this untoward generation. We're not just born again, and then that's the end of the story. But this was just the beginning of his message. It was just the beginning of the church, and it was, it's just the beginning for us as individuals and as a church as well. We can't just read and obey Acts 2.38 and then call it quits and say, that's the end of my story. And if you will read throughout from Acts 2.39 and on, and you will read through the book of Acts, you will see that there's so much more to happen after your new birth experience. God has so much for you. After he saves you, he has a purpose for you. So much more than just that initial being born experience. Whenever someone receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, I've always loved to encourage them that God has something incredible for you. Because if he poured out his spirit on you and he gave you this precious gift, the Bible says you're going to receive power to, to be his witness. And so he's given you this gift for a reason and a purpose. And that's just the beginning. The initial experience is just the beginning of your story and your walk with the Lord. And so as we read throughout the book of Acts, we're challenged. We're challenged to see how they lived. We're challenged to see how the church functioned and operated. It's a challenge to look at the individual believers and how they dedicated themselves to the kingdom and to the work of the Lord and to spreading the gospel, this good news that they had. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we're going to read this passage of scripture because this is so very, very, very important to us today. Because many times we stop at Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and that's where we end our story. And we're saved, and we've obeyed the gospel, and the Lord has saved us, and he's changed us. But we forget the rest of the chapter that is so very important, and God is desiring it for his church and for each one of us. So let's read verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Let's stop there for just a moment. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? That means that they were studying. They were being taught. They were growing in doctrine and truth. They were... They were coming on Wednesday night Bible study, and they were listening to the word of God, and they were growing in doctrine and understanding, and they were gathering together, and they were studying God's word together. And so it says here, and in breaking of bread and in prayers, they had fellowship. They broke bread together. They prayed together. Do you see these elements that happen after Acts 2.38, after they experienced the gift of the Holy Ghost and they were saved and the Lord had done such a wonderful thing in them, 
The story is not over. It's only beginning. And here in verse 42, just this one verse, it's so powerful because what were they doing? They were studying the doctrine and they were continuing steadfastly in it. They were fellowshipping with one another. They were breaking bread together. They were having meals together and they were praying together. Those are important elements. Studying, preaching, teaching, getting in the word together. Together. There's a word we can take out of that scripture. Together. That means that they had to come together and gather together to study and to fellowship and to to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in prayer. Verse 43 Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Let's stop there for a brief moment. Fear. This fear that we're speaking of in this scripture is not just a, I'm scared, I'm terrified, but it's a reverence and an awe. And they had a fear of the Lord. We need a little bit more fear of the Lord today. We need people who fear God, who honor him, who realize how holy he is, who, who honor his house, right? Who give reverence to him, who give reverence to his word. So fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had a need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And I love this part. The Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. So the early church did more than experience this wonderful thing for themselves and experience God's grace and salvation and then say, that's the end. That's the end of the story. The early church realized that this is only the beginning. When you experience God's grace and his mercy and when he saves you, that is just the beginning of the story. And it was just the beginning of this church on the day of Pentecost. They did more than make converts. They weren't going around just trying to convert people and convince them to follow after their gospel. But they were making disciples. And the way you make a disciple is you literally invest everything you have into souls. You literally give your time, your treasure, if that's what it takes, your attention, your prayer, your fellowship, your home. You open up your life to people to make a disciple. Soul winning is not easy, and it is usually very messy. You've got to get down in the trenches with people. You've got to do life beside them. 
And that is how you make disciples. You are investing in these souls, not just trying to convince them, not just trying to convert them, but truly loving people and getting down in the muck and the mire. And sometimes it's, you know, the middle of the night. And sometimes it's, you know, someone has a need and you have to change your plans to go and help them and meet that need. And that's what the early church was doing. They were there for one another. They were going out and they were winning souls. And the Lord was honoring it. And the church was growing daily. So the Christians that you meet in the book of Acts, we're not content to meet once a week for service as usual. They weren't content to just come together once or twice and, you know, say, okay, I can check that off my list. I went to service. But they met in some way, shape, or form. They were meeting daily. So what does that look like today? Does that mean that we have to have service here every night at 7 o'clock? That would be great. But you can go and daily, you and I can daily meet together and we can meet people at their point of need. You can have a Bible study group wherever you're at, on your job, in your break room. You can have a Bible study, study group in your home. And I'm not talking about it doesn't always have to be with the church folks, but we can reach out. That's part of that discipleship is reaching out and making disciples, inviting people to be a part of your life and telling them what God has done for you, sharing your testimony. We've talked about that the last few weeks, sharing your testimony, taking that a step further and meeting together to care for them, to win their soul, to search the scriptures together and, and there's multiple scriptures. If you're taking notes, you can write some of these down and read them. But throughout the book of Acts, we see them doing this very thing. They weren't just coming together on Sunday and checking off a box. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says they met daily. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says they cared for one another daily. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says that they were winning souls daily. Acts 17, 11 says they were searching the scriptures together daily. In Acts chapter 16, 5, their numbers increased daily. Why? Because their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality. It was not a once-a-week routine. It was not a box to be checked off. It was a lifestyle that they lived day in and day out. Wherever they went, they were reaching. They were loving people. Sometimes it's that easy. Sometimes it's just showing somebody some love and, and showing them the love of God. And opening that door for conversation and opening that, maybe opening your home or opening, uh, uh, having a meal with somebody or over a cup of coffee. That is how the church grows. We have to go out and compel them to come. We can't sit here and wait for them to come find us every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. 
And we might have one or two come strolling in, saw us on Facebook or, you know, drove by. The, the Spirit's done that for us, right? He's compelled them to come. People have been driving by and said, I need to go in there. Can't explain it, but I need to go in there. And that's incredible. But that does not take away the importance of the church being the church, loving people day in and day out, reaching for the lost day in and day out, no matter where you are. What is our motivation? It should be souls. It's not numbers, but those numbers represent souls. And so wherever I go, I pray, God, help me to just to win a soul. Help me to love on somebody. Help me to show somebody your grace and how awesome you truly are. No matter where you're at, it is an opportunity for you to be the church. I sat under an umbrella at a rainy ball field a little bit ago and encouraged a woman and told her how much, you know, how good God is and how good he's been to me. It's sometimes that simple. Taking an opportunity to just share your story and to love people. You know, there's, a, there's an old saying that says, um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right? No, but you, you can lead a horse to the truth. You can lead someone to the truth but you can't make them drink it. But I'll tell you what, how do you get that horse to drink? Take them for a run. Jump on that horse, and you take them around for a run, and I promise you, when you bring them back to that water, they're going to drink because they're thirsty. So when we have these encounters with people every single day, we might think, ah, you know, I've had this conversation before. But if you would just make them thirsty, make them hungry for the things of God, tell them your story, tell them what God has done for you, let them have a, des a desire to say, I want that. I want what you have. How do I get that? When we as a church are doing what we're supposed to do every single day, then God does what he can do every single day. He saves the souls. And if we are not bringing people and leading them to the cross, then how will they ever hear? How will they hear without a preacher? The church has a job to do, and it's not all up to the pastor. It's not all up to the ministry team, but every single one of us, that's the model that we see in the book of Acts. It wasn't just the apostles going out and saying, oh, you know, won't you come to church with me? We're going to meet together on Sunday at 11 o'clock, so you come with me. That's not what they did. They were out there every single day. They went to the temple daily. They took people with them. I imagine that they just grabbed people along the way. Hey, come with me. How you been? Good to see you. Come with me. I got places to go. You're going to want to experience this. So in Acts chapter 3, let's turn there, verses 1 through 3, we get a little picture of Peter and John. 
and how they were acting out exactly what we're talking about, building his church. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Now, stop here for just a moment. So Peter and John were going to the temple. This seems like this is a pretty regular thing for them. It's the hour of prayer. They go, and they pass this way often. But I just want to point out that this is not an apostolic prayer meeting that they were going to. This was a Jewish prayer meeting in the temple. All right? And Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. And so they were doing what they knew to do and they were going to the temple for prayer. These events are a fulfillment of Acts 2, 47. Every single day living for God. It says that they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Remember that? In verse 47, daily they went together in the temple. So in Acts 3 and 4, immediately after the day of Pentecost, which we love to talk about, we love to preach about, we love to celebrate it. I can't wait till Pentecost Sunday. It's one of my favorite services of the year. I love to recognize that day and remember the birthday of the church. But we can't forget what happens after because a birthday is just the beginning and there's so much more that we can glean from this early church. So in Acts chapter 3 and 4, the day of Pentecost is behind us. And what do they do? They are meeting together. They're going to the temple to pray. They're ministering to people along the wayside already. Just days, days have passed, and they're already that the Lord is adding to the church, and he's growing his church, and they're meeting together daily, 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 daily. That's the key word. It's a daily thing. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's a daily thing. And the emphasis is on the name of Jesus Christ. If you notice, when they look at this man, they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There was an emphasis on the name of Jesus. And you will see this same emphasis all throughout the following chapters in the book of Acts. The early church were people of the name. This is not a coincidence. A name is much more than just identification, but it carries with it authority and power. And so the first concern that this early church had was to give glory to his name. Because in his name, there was power. In his name, there was salvation. In his name, there was healing. And there was a great deal of emphasis on the name of Jesus. So a few elements that we've seen so far 
as we see this, this story emerge here, we see that they met together daily. And they were breaking bread and they were praying and they were studying in some way, shape, or form. It was happening daily. And we see that they were blessing one another and being a blessing and that they were selling things to their possessions and their goods and they were bringing it to the church. They were giving. They were making disciples. They were winning souls every single day. They were going to prayer and they were emphasizing the name of Jesus all the way. Everything they did, they emphasized the name of Jesus. So Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we're going to read this passage of Scripture together. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Peter and John are often found together in the Gospels. They were partners in the fishing business. We know that because we, we find that out very early in the gospel story. Luke chapter 5, verse 10. They were partners together in business. They prepared the last Passover for Jesus in Luke 22 and 8. They were the ones that ran to the tomb on the first Easter Sunday morning in John chapter 20. And they would later minister to the Samaritans who believed on Jesus in Acts chapter 8. Now that they were full of the Holy Ghost, the apostles were no longer competing for greatness. Now in the Gospels, we saw a lot of that. We saw them competing with one another. Who is greatest? Jesus, who is the best? It's me, isn't it? And we laugh, but, you know, we would have been just the same. And so we see a little bit of a different picture now that we're in the book of Acts and they're full of the Holy Ghost. He's living inside of them. He's in them. He's not just with them, but he's in them. And now we see that there's not so much competition and there's not so much arguing over who's greater and and. They're finally working faithfully together to build the church. And Jesus had commissioned them in this scripture that we just read in Matthew 28. He told them to go and make disciples in the name. And we know that name. He told them to go and teach people. And he said, I'll be with you. He was sending his spirit, and when he said, I'll be with you, he was literally going to be in them. And so these disciples are now, they've been given this commission, 
And it would have been very difficult for the disciples that we see in the Gospels to have obeyed this commission because there was too much bickering amongst them, too much competition, who's greater, who's loved more, who's got more power and authority. But now that they have the Holy Ghost, we see example after example in Scripture when they are together in unity, one mind, one accord, together. I'm sure they didn't always agree on everything. I'm sure that sometimes Peter wanted to go to Wendy's for lunch and John wanted McDonald's. I'm sure they had discussions and disagreements, but they were united in unity under the banner of the Holy Ghost and winning souls, the Great Commission, winning the lost, expanding his kingdom. And so we see a little bit of a different picture here. They're not competing anymore, but they're working together faithfully to build the church. So in Acts chapter 3, they're on their way to prayer, not on their way from prayer. Okay? But prayer meeting is not the only time that Christians pray. Right? How many times have we been guilty of that? So let's look at this, what this might look like in the 21st century. We're in the store and we run into somebody and they said, oh, you just wouldn't believe what I'm going through. And what do we say? I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then do we do it? Or we say, this is another famous one, famous lines. We say, you know what? God can touch you. If you'll just come to church on Sunday, right down the road there at Life Point at 11 o'clock, God can touch you. Right? So what we see in Acts chapter 3 here is that Christians can pray anytime in any place. And we don't have to confine ourselves to that Sunday service or that Wednesday night Bible study or that Tuesday night prayer meeting. If we're truly being the church and being who God has called us to be, then we'll pray every day. We'll win souls every day. We'll love on anybody, anywhere, even in the middle of Walmart. Amen. So the lame man was expecting a good deed. He had his cup out, and he was expecting alms. He was expecting them to give him some money. But instead, he received a miracle. How incredible. Let's read on Acts chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, 
walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he, was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So what just happened here is they were being the church when they weren't just coming together for service, but they were being the church every day, wherever they went. They had the Holy Ghost in them, and they were taking it, they were taking it out. And when this man asked for a good deed of kindness, he received his miracle, and he goes inside, he goes with them, and when he goes inside, what did it do? It captured the attention of all of the people. I've heard it said, if you want to draw a crowd, start a fire. You start a fire and you'll have a crowd come around. What's that fire? What's going on over there? You want to draw some attention? A fire draws attention. And when we begin to be the church and we have the Holy Ghost fire in operation every single day, we won't have to pay money to promote people to promote our church services on Sunday and get people in these doors. They'll say, I wonder what's going on up there. I want to go check it out. If the church is being the church. Silver and gold have I none, they said. All right. So the lame man goes into the temple and, you know, that is the purpose of miracles. It's not just to do the miracle in us or for us, but it is so that the works of God should be made manifest. It is so that people will be drawn by the miracle and say, what is this? And... We can bring people into the temple. We can bring people into the fellowship of the church when there are miracles. Peter turns the temple into a courtroom, and he lays out all the evidence for everybody to see. So we've got two ordinary fishermen here. Thankfully, they're getting along now. They're not arguing anymore. Two buddies, two ordinary fishermen, and how could they perform such a great miracle? This gave them the platform to tell everyone it's through the name of Jesus. The name. They bring up the name once again. The power and the authority of the name of Jesus. Verse 12. When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. 
But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he says here, why are you looking at us? They're saying, we will minister to you, but we don't want the attention from you. Sometimes the church can get this backwards. We minister to people so that we can have the attention. And it was never intended to be that way. It's so he gets the glory. It's not our power. It's not our holiness. Our righteousness is filthy rags. But it's the power of the name of Jesus. And when the church is being the church, we are going to make his name famous. And they reminded this crowd, we didn't do this. He did this. His name, through faith in his name, he did this work. In verses 17 and 18, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Christ did it. He's saying the things that have been spoken of by the prophets and Christ and his suffering, he's fulfilled it. And he's turning this miracle back and giving glory to the name and the work of the cross. Amen. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, he goes on to say, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So let's stop right there for just a moment. This whole incident has now led to these people hearing the gospel. Do you see that? An ordinary day, two fishermen walk into the temple to pray. They pass someone with a need. They tell this man, I know the answer. It's not me, and it's not what I have to give you, but I know the answer. A miracle takes place, and the crowds are drawn by this miracle. And then th this whole scenario turns around into a sermon. These people got to hear a sermon of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were told to repent and be converted. He goes on to say, When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So a few key elements here in this passage of Scripture. Once again, they're preaching. They're preaching repentance. They're preaching conversion. They're preaching the power of the name of Jesus and the work of the cross. They're preaching 
again, they don't have a New Testament, but they can go back to the prophets and they can say, this is what the prophets have been speaking. This is what's been coming from their mouths since the world began. And so they're turning this whole scenario into a sermon of salvation. They first talk about repentance. Repentance is a turning away from. Repentance is something that we all have to do. We have to die daily. We have to turn away from things every day. Conversion is a turning to. So when you are converted in that first scripture there uh, in verse 19, repent ye therefore and be converted. So you can turn away. That's why we have, you know, lots of programs and counseling and lots of things can out there in the world can help you turn away or repent from something that is not right. But then what do you go to? When you turn away, you're not done. You have to repent and be converted. And so if we teach people just to repent, and that's it, that's all you got to do is just repent, there's more to that story. Yes, repentance is a great step away from the wickedness, away from our sin. We're turning away from the things that God does not want in our lives. But we must be converted and we must turn to. So 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So when we repent and when we teach people and when we're discipling people and we teach them, repent of your sins, repent, turn away, don't do that anymore. Yes, that's great. But we also have to take it a step further and teach them how to be converted by the renewing of their mind, how to be converted to what? To God, to his righteousness, to his holiness, to his commandments, to his love, to his mercy, to his truth, to his word. That is where that scripture comes in tonight when we opened and we talked about how daily they were continuing in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That's how we're converted. We can repent, you know, anybody. Anybody can, can say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm, you know what? I'm going to quit smoking. And there's lots of resources out there in this world that can help them to turn away from smoking. But we can't leave it just there at that step. We have to teach people how to not only turn away from sin, but to turn toward God. To take steps toward righteousness and holiness and towards being more like Jesus. And that's the thing about discipleship. If we're, if we're being the church and we're discipling people, we must sometimes get messy. As I said earlier, it's sometimes a very messy process. But it's just the beginning. When we have a new baby, I want you to think about, I think Pastor might have said this recently, 
uh, think about a new baby, and we, we get this new baby, and they're born, and we're excited, and we rejoice, and we're like, yay, we have a new baby. And then you just set them down and say, okay, figure the rest out. We'll see you in 20, 25 years or so. Check in on me. That baby is not going to grow. It's not going to thrive. It's not going to survive. It's not going to make it. It does not stand a chance. But discipleship, if the church is being the church, we're not only going out and winning souls. We're not only daily out there, you know, working for the Lord, but we're also discipling, we're loving, we're helping these babies to grow. We're teaching them not just to repent, but how to convert toward Jesus, how to turn towards him. And that's the importance of Bible studies. That's the importance of, of just grabbing a cup of coffee and having a conversation with somebody and, you know, just telling them what the word of God says and teaching them the ways of the Lord. You know, I'm not that old, but I can tell you that I remember a time when pretty much everybody had some knowledge of the Bible. They knew the basic Bible stories. They, they knew the basic teachings. They might even been able to tell you most of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because maybe it was a grandmother or great aunt Sally or VBS with, you know, their friend down the road or, but pretty much everybody had some grasp on Christian principles and the word of God. But we are living in a postmodern world and it is not so. Most people are clueless when it comes to the word of God. There's been a culture shift, a change in society. And we, can't, we can no longer assume that people know the story of Noah and the ark. We can no longer assume that people, you know, know the, the commandments of God. We can no longer assume that people know, have heard the Beatitudes and, you know, basic Bible teachings. We can no longer make the assumption that people coming to us, they know these things. That is why the church has a job to do. We have to disciple people, we have to teach them, and we have to raise them up. All right. Um, so Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 Peter is concluding another sermon here. He's becoming quite the preacher. And he goes on to talk about Moses. And he explains to them that Moses, he's using Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He's quoting Moses to point to Jesus. And why did he do that? Because he got on their level, he got in their understanding. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't understand who Jesus was. And he was trying to get to a place of explaining it using the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18. But after he explains this, in verse 25, he says, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. 
saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So Peter is saying to the Jews here, if anyone should get this, it should be you. You're the children of the prophets. You're going to be blessed for generations. And God has sent Jesus in the flesh, manifested in the flesh, to bless you and to help you turn away from your iniquities. But as we know, John 1, 11 and 12 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. So as the church, we live in different times, but we can still look back to the book of Acts and look back to the early church as a model. And the word of God is applicable across time, any time, any place, any culture. The word of God is applicable. And what we see the apostles and the early church acting out daily, we can do that daily. We can serve the Lord daily. We can fellowship we can disciple. We can be his body every single day. We don't have to wait until Sunday. If you're at work, you can be his body. You can be the church. If you're at the gas station, if you're at the grocery store, if you're in the middle of the, the aisle at Walmart, you can be the church wherever you're at. If you're on your way to church, like Peter and John were that day, you can grab somebody and bring them with you. You can pray for people right there, right then and there. What would happen if we would get away from that? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll pray for you. And then never praying for them. Be careful who you tell that to. I'll pray for you. Have we gotten to a place where it's just a Christian cliche and we just say those words? But do we really pray for them? And why not use the opportunity right then and right there, just like Peter and John did, to just go ahead and pray for them? What would the Lord do if we would give him the opportunity? The best defense of Christianity we read tonight in Acts chapter 3. And we saw that the best defense of Christianity is a changed life. There was a change in the lame man. A physical change, a spiritual change. There was a change in him. So is the church today increased with goods and just happy and satisfied? Or do we have a passion 
and a desire, what motivates us? Because it should be souls. It should be the lost. It should motivate us to think that hell hath enlarged herself and that there are souls every single day dropping into hell, dropping into eternity. But we have the ability to tell people, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ, that's your answer. And how many people do we know, just, just with this crowd represented in this room tonight, how many people will you encounter in just the next few days that God could use you to minister and be the church just as we see played out in the New Testament church, to minister to someone, to meet a need, to disciple someone, to love on somebody, to win a soul, to teach, to preach, to show somebody the way of repentance and show them to the cross, to teach somebody how to be converted and to turn towards the Lord. God can use you. He can use each and every one of us. And that is his desire open the book of Acts. And as we've been taking a journey through the book of Acts and we've been studying how the, the church was born and how then it thrived and it grew, it should be an inspiration to us. I don't know about you, but it motivates me. It makes me want to be like that. It makes me want to go build an extension on my dining room table and just invite people We've got to do better about being the church, not just on Sunday. Wherever we're at, whoever we're rubbing shoulders with, their souls, and that should be enough to motivate us. You know, I think tonight it would be good for us to check our spirits and ask the Lord, what motivates me? I've heard it said this way. If you want to know what motivates you, what do you weep about or what do you sing about? So if we are not, as a church, if we're not able to weep over lost souls or we're not able to rejoice and sing when someone is added to the kingdom, then souls is not our motivation. And souls and his kingdom should be our number one motivation. Can we all stand? And let's just pray that tonight. Let's ask the Lord, Lord, show me what motivates me. Do I weep over the lost? Some of us have lost loved ones. When's the last time we wept? over their souls. Maybe it's your neighbor, your friend, or your coworker. Do we find ourselves not really excited and able to rejoice when the Lord does add a soul to the kingdom? Because souls should be our motivation. And let's ask that of the Lord tonight. Let's ask for him to check us in our spirits. God, we come before you, Jesus, Lord, we see in your word what motivated 
this New Testament church, we see, God, that they were motivated by souls, that they were motivated to make disciples. They gave everything they had for the cause. They gave up their time and their talents and their treasure, God. Help us, Lord, to be motivated by lost souls. Help us, God, if it's been a while since we've won someone to you, God. Lord, lay a soul on my heart, Jesus, and help me to win that soul, God, for you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would place people in our hearts and our minds tonight, Jesus, that we can minister to God. I pray that you would place people in our hearts, God, that we would have such a, a passion and a desire for their soul, God, that we would begin to weep over them. Help us, God, to weep over the lost. Help us, Lord, to rejoice when your kingdom grows. Lord, let souls be such a motivation for us, God. Let it drive us in our conversations. Let it drive us in where we go and what we do and what we say and how we live, God. Let us have such a passion and a desire to be as the early church, God, and to minister to the lost and to reach the souls that are in our circle Help us, God, to reach souls in our, in our place of work, God. Help us to reach souls when we're running errands, Lord. Help us to reach souls, God, wherever we go, wherever we place our foot, God, there is potential. There is potential, Lord. Open our eyes, God, and motivate us to reach the lost. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would just take this word and plant it deep in our hearts, God. Help us, God. Help us. Help us to be your body, Lord. Help us to reach. Help us to win. In Jesus' name, amen.